Hey, everyone. Welcome to Queerly Recommended, the podcast where we recommend queer films, books, TV shows, and more. I'm Tara Scott. I review sapphic fiction at the Lesbian Review and Smart Bitches Trashy Books. And this week, I'm recommending another graphic novel. And I'm Chris Bryant, a contemporary romance writer for Bold Strokes Books. And this week, I'm recommending a documentary from October 2022. As always, thank you so much to everyone who supports our show, whether through coffee, signing up for our newsletter. We do have links to both in the show notes. And again, we still, we appreciate all the ratings and the reviews. And if you just want to do one other thing, please make sure you tell a friend about the show, especially somebody that needs those queer media recommendations. Okay. I heard something very exciting is happening, Chris. Mm. You're having a baby. I mean, a book I baby. Am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a baby baby, but a book baby. Yes. So Cherish is off. It's now uh, in the hands of reviewers. And its official release date is September 1st through the web store, the BSB web store. And then everywhere else, September 12th. So... This is a good one because it brings back Brooke and Cassie from Temptation. Yay! Yeah, they're side characters in this one, so that's kind of fun. So, what's it about? It is about an artist uh, who just recently graduates art school, and uh, she is granted the artist-in-residence in Gota, Massachusetts, and she's staying with the Wellingtons. They have a, a guest house. And so she's staying the summer there with Brooke and Cassie and also Noah and somebody else. So uh, it's just kind of a continuation. It's uh, six years after I wrote Temptation and just kind of you see how they settled into their life and how they are helping others. So. Mm-hmm. so are they pretty are they are Brooke and Cassie pretty prominent in this one like do we actually see see scenes with like just them like is this a you know kind of like how rad does how radcliffe does that sometimes in her series where like the honor series is a great example of this Mm -hmm. where you see a new couple you see their relationship forming but we also get scenes with like some of the previous couples it is first person so i can't do that (laughs) right so it's not that it makes it tricky it does make it tricky but no they're they're in a lot of the scenes they also yeah. provide a lot of the setting for the the this couple trying to be a couple maybe mm-hmm. sort of being a couple and it's it's got all the tropes the juicy tropes the um age gap the mm-hmm. ice queen the finance gap so uh, and it's a good beach read i mean it's it's a quick read it's a fun read it's very spicy like very mm-hmm. spicy I guess spicy as temptation. So very spicy. Yeah. All right. Well, that's I'm excited about that. Yeah. So that comes out uh, here in just a couple of weeks, really. All right, people go do your pre-orders. Yay. And I guess just kind of an important update for everybody who listens to us regularly, especially because what we're going to talk about next, as always, is what Mm -hmm. we've been reading or watching or gaming or whatever. We did a little bit of reading about the strikes that are happening in Hollywood because there are two that are happening. There's the writer's strike, which started first. Now there's the actor's strike, which is also happening. And really what it comes down to is a lot of, a lot of people in the industry are not being paid nearly enough. Like we're used to hearing about, you know, the super famous, the A-listers, how much money they're making. They make however many million on a film. 
But like for most of, for most actors, it's really hard day to day to actually make a living. Like if they're making 30 grand a year, they're doing pretty well. And that's not okay. And a lot of uh, the demands have to do with generative AI. And, you know, we, we want to support this action. And because of that, you know, we read up on what SAG-AFTRA had to say about it. And, you know, they're requesting podcasters to not cover struck work. You know, the ramifications for podcasters and influencers mainly is just around, well, if you ever want to join the guild, you're not going to be able to do it if you promote struck work. I don't know about you, Chris. I have no plans (laughs) to try to join any actor's guild, but I am highly in support of the basically all of the strike action that's happening right now because mm-hmm. you know the way these large companies are making so much money and so many people are living at or below the poverty line it's not right and so you know we hadn't read we hadn't read up on it before the last episode went out or we would have you know taken this step two weeks ago right. but we do better when we know better and so until the strike's over we're not going to be covering struck work so that means anything that's scripted and anything that is scripted on streaming platforms too because it's really the streamers are a huge part of the problem here so i hope y'all like having recommendations that are either unscripted stuff or books or video games because that's what we're doing at the moment so hopefully people like a lot of unscripted TV or films, like documentary style right, thing. because or... I love them. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this, the older we get, the more we love them. Isn't that weird? <laughs> I know. I know. It's so true. <laughs> it is. When, when I saw my parents or any of the uh, like Dateline or 2020 shows, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. oh they're watching that again. And now <laughs> I can't get enough. <laughs> I know. It's not, you know what? I was talking to a coworker recently, or I think it was a couple months ago, who told me that they fall asleep listening to um dateline no podcast yeah. i was like really how are you sleep through that no i'd want to know did they you know what happened did they catch him yeah did you they know, catch what? the killer Let's right what I- yeah no, no so uh with that in mind what we've been reading or watching sections might be a little lighter than usual because it's that interesting space of continuing to watch helps mm-hmm. those who are striking but promoting the work does not help those <laughs> who are striking right. <laughs> so we're still watching we'll probably catch you up on some of it later but for now chris what have you been reading and watching well i am right now reading crush and a heartnet records latest book that mm-hmm. just came out this month and uh i'm also i'm still watching alone I'm still watching mm-hmm. the alone, the uh, the dump out in the middle of the uh, nowhere vastness of upper Canada somewhere, or British Columbia. I don't know where they are now. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But it's really rough wherever they are because it looks awful. So um, so <laughs> I was like, no, thank you. I, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're down to three people. Oh, and yeah, so two people deserve it. And there's one guy that looks, acts and talks like the guy who lives across the street from me. Oh, no. I call him the wife beater. Um, oh, no. The one that chased his wife around with a box knife and then uh, outside the front. Uh, yeah, I had to call the cops. And wow. he slashed her tires like right there. I have it on film. He's like, Ksh! you could hear the tire go because he used the box knife. And so the cops came and they were there for less than a minute because she was like, no, everything's fine. 
And they're like walking mm. by the car with the flat tires. Anyway, so that guy reminds me of the guy who's on alone. And of course, you know, naturally I'm not for him. So no, but I'm okay with the other two winning either one. They deserve it. I mean, it's, but mm-hmm. you know, again, I always get really frustrated because people, they don't know how to manage their time better. I mean, of course I would leave after two days. So who am I to criticize, but sure. like either they spend all of their time building structures that are amazing. And I would live in today and mm-hmm. then they tap out because they have no energy because they haven't looked for food or they look for food and they have no, no shelter. So they tap out because they, they're not warm or they're not safe mm-hmm. or they're, you know, wet from the rain or whatever. So, you know, it's a very, that's, it's to be a contestant on a show like this. It takes, takes a lot of like thinking, thinking things out. So for so. the people who typically win, or if they don't win, they at least go very far. Are there common strategies that tend to work? Um, A lot of times people will gain a bunch of weight. Like uh, one guy, one contestant, uh, he gained 45 pounds. So yeah. Yeah. He gained 45 pounds and then he just, he sat out and he like starved himself the whole time and he won. Like he didn't do much of anything. Oh my God. How long are they there for? So it depends. Usually they, usually the winner ends up at about, like we've seen them anywhere from like, in the 70s, day 70 to day 100 or night in the 90s. And, you know, they put them up there in late fall. So you have Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks, you know, to get your shit together and build a shelter and then figure out your food source. You know, I mean, because you have a lot of people who swear they can fish and they never catch a fish and it just amazes me and they have to go home because they're starving. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also, you know, this is like rugged fishing, like find a line, make a lure, you know, make whatever yeah. you can and make it work. And these people are used to, you know, like the anglers and the yeah. big, huge, you know, $900 <laughs> yeah. fishing rods. And yeah, it's not yeah. that hard when you have the right equipment, but mm-hmm. you get nothing, you get wire or you get fishing lure and that's it. So it's hard. It's, it's not as easy as one thinks. Uh, and then you have to deal with when you do build a structure. And in the middle of the night, you were the mice come in and chew through your clothes and chew nope. into your sleeping bag. <laughs> nope. Fuck that. Nope. nope. Absolutely not. <laughs> nope. No, thank you. <laughs> I always remember hearing stories about, you know, the rats that go into people's apartments and chew off the baby's toes. <gasps> Do, have you heard those stories? No, but I remember watching, I think it's on Netflix, Oprah interviewed Viola Davis. And mm-hmm. she talked about how she grew up extremely poor mm-hmm. and would get bitten by rats in the middle of the night. And so that's the thing. I always think of that. Also, my <laughs> one of my very, very first memories. Did I ever tell you? No. About, okay. So until I was four, we lived in a very old farmhouse. It was actually my grandfather was born in this house. And <laughs> when my parents moved in, my dad was like, Jesus Christ this is not okay. And he like insulated the house and did some (laughs) things to make it better. But one of my first memories is being in bed and a mouse running under my bed and then me running out of my bed into the living room (laughs) onto the couch. Yeah, that's tough. It was like a hundred year old house. Right. That probably had some integrity They need to, you know, they come in and, you know, in the cold, from the cold. I can't blame them. I mean, Mm -hmm. my mom had a severe uh, fear of mice because uh, Mm -hmm. same thing. She was in a refugee camp and same thing. Like mice were horrible and they'd run all over her face and she just (gasps) could not. Yeah, it was rough. 
Mm. She she really was very scared of mice. Yeah, that's fair. That'd change you. No, thank you. Yeah, for sure. So, so in conclusion, neither yeah. <laughs> of us are applying to be on alone. <laughs> right. But we sure as hell can make fun of it. So there. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. What about you? What have you been reading or watching lately okay. or playing? Or playing. Yes. So I finished the show, Hack My Home. I oh. really enjoyed that one. I thought it was really, really fun. Most of the episodes I mean, generally speaking, I found the episodes really uplifting. I have to admit, there was one family where they never talked about their faith, but I'm like, these people are super duper Christians. And like, <laughs> I was maybe side-eyeing a little bit because they were doing a lot of like transnational adoption, which can be like extremely problematic when, you know, like white families are on purpose adopting kids right. from other races from other countries. But like, because they want to raise them to be little Jesus warriors. Like I I have an issue with that, but I thought the hacks on that home were still very cool. (laughs) Regardless of what the parents have to say about anything. I think the main thing that I kept thinking like, and I don't even know if it's a critique per se, but like the main negative thought that I had aside from that episode, which is, you know, I, I will freely admit that's my own bias. That's my own damage. That's fine. But a lot of the stuff relied on electronics. And so there would be, say, I forget what you call it, but it, like it looks like an architectural design thing where like part of the kitchen just has this like thing that comes down and goes across. I don't know. They use the right word. It doesn't matter. But it's not actually that thing because there's a little remote control that lowers it. And hey, look, there's all the small appliance storage. Woo! Mm. Or like, here's a family dining table, but actually it's been hacked so that the center can raise up and there's your computer monitors. And now you still have an office in this space. Woo! And the thing I just wondered was like, what happens as soon as a kid loses a remote control? Or like, what happens when the electronics break? Like it's, Mm -hmm. they were so cool, but I just wondered, will they last like who do they call to fix yeah. it hey i've got this yeah exactly like anything non-electronic i loved there were some really super cool things they did with like compartments that would pull out of like there was this one kitchen they were building in a basement so that it looks like among the counter like the, yes there's some drawers and stuff like that but there's one that looks like it's just a bunch of like little shallow shelves and it's like oh that's cute and you can put like little cute things on it but actually it pulls out mm. for like another four foot table. It's like, this oh, wow. Gorgeous butcher block. So it can be used as a prep space, but it can also be used as like a meal space. And they use these and they show these like special hinges. And I was like, yes, hell yes. We'll stand up in the apocalypse. I guess my thing is if anybody's <laughs> going to hack my home, I want the hacks to stand up during the apocalypse when we right. don't have running electricity anymore, because I am not Nick Offerman in that episode. Of that zombie show. Yeah. And I can't remember his name. Oh, The Last of Us. I can remember The Last of Us. And actually, mm-hmm. I think his character's name was Bill. I think you're right. Turns I think out I right. can remember. Oh. Miracles happen, Chris. <laughs> the miracles happen. It's been one of those days where it's like, what's the word that I want? And I'm trying to catch butterflies with I'm my having, bare hands. You know why? It's because mm-hmm. it's Monday night. We're recording on a Monday night. Oh, no. Yes, that's why. So our brains have been spent already. That's right. That's true. So yes, I I quite like Hack My Home. So anybody who likes home reno shows, who likes like 
you know, those positive group dynamics. It's super fun. Yes, I Chris. did while I was looking for other documentaries to watch. I saw a, um, it's a new show. Well, actually mm-hmm. it's in the second season. I didn't know the show existed and it was probably on Hulu. Honestly, I don't remember, mm-hmm. but it was famous people going back and doing some sort of makeover on somebody's home in their life. And so I wanted to see like, oh, do I know any of these people? You know, it tells you. Mm-hmm on the, each uh, episode, who the person is. And so Shaq was one of them who was giving something to his, doing something to his uncle's house or something. Amazing. But like they have all these different famous people and I'm like, I don't know anybody <laughs> except for <laughs> Shaq. So I was like, nah, I'm going to find something else. But there is yeah. a show that's like that. So I'm sure it's good. I just, I have a hard time. It's just so boring to me. Like I love certain oh. things. Like, like extreme makeover back in the early 2000s I when they that. had yeah I watched that too because I thought it was really cool because mm-hmm. I think I told you there's two houses here in the Kansas City area where they had a house they had the makeover yes. done so I was kind of like you know invested geographically because you know they it took place here in the Midwest so yeah. I did watch it it was fun and my mom liked to watch it so we'd watch it together mm-hmm. um but then it gets boring. You know, when you're older, you're like, I can't afford this shit. <laughs> it's like, why should I, te- why tease me when I, I can't think, afford it? I totally get that. I think for me, I probably wouldn't be able to sit and just like, just sit and watch it and do nothing else. Right. That's my, if I'm going to sit and just like throw a show on while I have a meal or like I oh, said, like yeah. it would be perfect as a treadmill show. Like what's that show that you're doing something else. You want a show on that you don't have to constantly have your attention trained to. Cause like, mm. like I said earlier this year, I got on this big Bollywood kick and like, I'm still watching some of them, but I can't <laughs> have a meal while I'm watching a Bollywood movie because I can't look, then I can't look down at my food right. or I'm going to miss she, like right. what mm-hmm. just happened. So <laughs> I, yeah, that's what I like it for. Um, yeah. And then I'm still playing Diablo four. It's okay. kind of funny. Uh, it took uh, a few months, but I think I really love it now. And I was like mm. really frustrated by some things before. And I don't even remember what they were because I really love it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's much more fun. I think for anybody who hasn't played, who's been thinking of it, the main piece of advice I would say is like speed through the story as fast as you possibly can. Cause actually the story itself is like, whatever, it's fine. The art is the most gorgeous in the story. Like there's truly stunning mm-hmm. some of the artwork in it that you can tell just so much care went into the cutscenes. But you don't get some of the stuff that makes it more enjoyable to play unless you get through the story. So like you have to be of a certain level and pass a certain story point to get a horse. Well, a horse gets you around the map a lot fucking faster than just walking everywhere because it doesn't <laughs> let you run. That was the kind of stuff I was frustrated with. It was like, I can't run anywhere. I want to run. get me there faster. You need a horse. You got to get through some okay. of the story to get the horse. Um, but now there's seasonal content. So I think it's like every three months, they'll release a new season, quote unquote. Oh, and that's like cool. Each, yeah. Each season is going to have its own kind of game system type stuff. And so for this season, I am playing as a necromancer. I am like a tall, wiry dude with like his little army of bone soldiers running around behind him. Oh my gosh. Him. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very right. fun. I enjoy it. I don't know that I'm very good at it, but I definitely enjoy it. And then I played a game yesterday because 
Neil said, I think he had told me about it before. And then I forgot because it sounded familiar, but he sent me an email with a link and all it said was buy this for yourself. But I said, okay. So I did. And I played the whole thing yesterday. It's called Venba. It only takes about an hour to play. But it's about, so Venba is actually the name of the main character. She's a Tamil woman. She's recently moved from, moved to Canada with her husband from South India. And the story really follows about 30 years of her life. And so we see, you know, she really struggles with, she misses home so much. It's very hard for them to find full-time work, even though, you know, they're quite skilled. They're raising a son away from their family. And that's the kind of that first scene is, around should we stay in Canada or should we go back to India? And then it turns out she's pregnant. And they said, you know what? Let's stay here. We're going to raise this baby here. We're going to give them a a better chance. You know, we're going to give them a chance Mm -hmm. of a better life here. But then, of course, you know, through time, we also see their son rejecting his parents' culture. And it hurts her so badly. Like, she's Mm -hmm. trying to kind of bring him along on that. And it really, uh, it actually reminded me of a a few scenes from, it's this incredibly famous Bollywood film, even though Bollywood is North India and is very different from South India. But um, it's called Kabi Kushi Kabi Gum. And there's a character that's played by Kajal, who's also a very, very famous Indian actress. And they're because they're in London. So this couple, you know, their parents didn't want them. His parents did not want them to be together and and uh, cut him out of the family. And so now they're like raising their family in India. And she's like, these kids don't want to speak Hindi. They don't want to eat our food. Like, what are they doing? And so I, it, I was like, oh, yeah, this feels very like Canada, not UK, but quite interesting. And then there's cooking. There's uh, there's cooking throughout it. Each chapter, you're cooking some kind of a recipe. And this sort of puzzle games, except so Venba brought her mom's recipe book and it has her mom's writing in there, but because it's old and because it traveled, like it's missing some things sometimes. And so you, as Venba, like you're trying to figure out, okay, what is the right order? What is the way to, so as an example, like say you're frying um, some vegetables and aromatics, do you put the tomatoes in first? Well, you can't put the tomatoes in first because they release too much water. The onions won't get crispy. So you put in the onions and the aromatics first. And then, and it was so cool doing that because it wasn't, it didn't even feel like it's about getting it right for the sake of progression as much as like it feels like you're cooking. And (laughs) you see that like the way the food is being used to provide comfort sometimes, Mm -hmm. or it's to provide that connection with culture or to teach culture. And you see how Venba still feels connected with her mom through the food, even though they live so far apart. And as she's cooking, she's listening to music that's reminiscent of what's probably in the soundtracks of the films that she loves. So it's a really, really lovely little game. And I think if anyone has like a spare hour or two, and has a Nintendo Switch or a Steam account. It might even be on on like PlayStations and the other one, Xboxes. But like, it's just so sweet. I think people should get it. <laughs> so, Chris. Yes. It feels silly asking because I already know because I made sure know. to watch it with you. But <laughs> what is your official recommendation this week? Okay, so my official recommendation is Nothing Compares. And it's a Showtime documentary that's, you can also find it on Paramount Plus, Hulu, Amazon Prime. It was released in October of 2022. 
So it hasn't really, it's been out less than a year. And if you're in Canada, um, you can catch it on Crave. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read what it's about because you and I had discussions about what it's about and what was trying to, what, mm-hmm. what the direction of it was. So this says the documentary is an exploration of Sinead O'Connor's rise, fall, and enduring cultural impact. By the age of 20, O'Connor was one of Ireland's brightest rising stars, but her decision to use her fame as a platform to speak out on a number of controversial issues shifted her narrative from global stardom to worldwide condemnation. In a new interview, O'Connor reveals the abusive upbringing that left her feeling betrayed by both church and community and ultimately led her to find the therapeutic power of music. So Mm -hmm. every single person listening and probably in the world knows two things about Sinead O'Connor. Some of us know a lot more, but almost everybody knows these two things. Mm -hmm. She sang the song, Nothing Compares to You. Like every single person knows that. Mm-hmm. And she ripped up a photo of the Pope on Saturday Night Live on October 3rd of 1992. Like those are mm-hmm. the two things that everybody knows about her. So I, I actually watched this documentary twice. I watched it the first time just because I was like, oh, this might be interesting, you know, because she just recently passed. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, oh, I remember I loved her music when I was a kid. Like she was just such a trailblazer by with everything. And I yeah. didn't really know that at the time. I don't think a lot of us knew. I mean, we knew that she was really like really outspoken and, and said a lot of things. And, and I didn't know if it was for show or what it was. I just didn't have the background. Mm-hmm. Um, so watching the documentary the first time was just kind of an education. I was like, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. And so then I watched it the second time that I really like got into it. And like you and I talked before we started about like, we went down all these different rabbit holes. So like what she did, she used her platform to bring, like I said, in the, uh, the uh, blurb to bring like hardships in her world, to bring it to the forefront. Mm-hmm. To make everything. What am I trying to say here? <laughs> she wanted so, to bring it to light. Yes. She yes. wanted to use, well, she had a platform. Right. And she wanted to use it to call mm-hmm. attention to a lot of things. To a lot of things. And I think so when I look back on kind of like my remembrance of Sinead mm-hmm. O'Connor and kind of I would say my relationship with her music, we'll say, is I was definitely aware of nothing compares to you. I knew mm-hmm. that that was hers. I did not know that she was covering a Prince song that oh, he yeah. did with one of his bands. But like I, that song was everywhere. I knew that. Mm-hmm. And I heard that she ripped the photo of the Pope on Saturday Night Live, but I wasn't quite old enough. Like I don't, I was maybe watching it at that point. But mm-hmm. I don't remember watching that episode, or if I did, I didn't really get the significance. And I think the thing to keep um, in mind for me too yeah. at that time is that, so I was actually Catholic until I was 10 or 11. So when this happened, we had already left the Catholic church. We were in the Baptist church for probably mm-hmm. a couple of years at this point. And that was when I was hearing about like, Catholics aren't real Christians anyway, and, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of evangelicals have their very like ours is the only true Christianity kind of situation. And so I like, it was one of those, I was aware of it. I didn't really know at the time why she did it. I definitely had no idea where she got that photo, which is what I, I, 
like learning that in the documentary right. was like a holy shit because it has a whole other dimension because she just mm-hmm. sings the song she tears the photo she says the thing about real enemies and then like blows the candles out pieces out but there's like so much more to it and right. i didn't know that and i didn't think anything of it. and then she like largely drops off the airwaves and then when i was in university i've been trying to think and i cannot for the life of me remember it was either a friend or a professor who I kind of was friends with at the time. And they were like, here you go. These are the best ones. And that was when like downloading music from, you know, like Napster and LimeWire mm-hmm. and those things. Oh, and so, that, yeah. so I was told like, go download <laughs> these ones, get, get these ones. And so there were like a handful of Sinead O'Connor songs that I hadn't heard before. Mm-hmm. And I loved them. And they were so, there was just something like that was so there. And so it was great watching this and saying like oh yeah and starting to sing along to certain songs because i know these songs but then it's like when you realize when they were coming out and what was going on and even what some of them are actually about it was just this like whoa kind of a moment and i think yeah like for me i that so that was all i knew so i didn't realize she was already fairly controversial she was already very outspoken like i knew nothing about that first grammys performance yeah um i didn't know either i mean and i'm sure i watched it like i saw the episode i was watching saturday night saturday night live when it happened mm -hmm. and i remember when she did it i like gasped and i was like oh shit like what and then i just started laughing did you have any sense yeah yeah did you have any sense of why she did it no i just figured she was super mad at catholicism or like there was something going on like mm-hmm. i didn't know the history and a lot of people didn't and no. and this really brings it you know to light like what this was about and you know she really focused on like she loved her religion like but mm-hmm. she that was that was the one thing that i found was very interesting she loved the church and she couldn't yes. understand why they were not protecting children women uh why they were yeah. oppressing them and the abuse, uh, like the how the Pope wouldn't recognize uh, the abuse that was going on within the church. Mm-hmm. And so she was, that whole thing was like, there was so much, like you said, there were so many layers to that. Yes. Like her ripping up the picture, like it, like I did not have that at that time. And well, then- and that it was her, I mean, all of this is so, I feel like we probably don't need to be super precious about spoilers because everything that's in there is like in the public record. She's talked about it in interviews. Mm -hmm. She had an autobiography come out a couple of years ago, which I put on, I put the audio book on hold with my library, Mm. but like that particular, it wasn't just any photo of the Pope. I thought it was just some photo, right? It was the photo that her mother had hanging Mm -hmm. in her bedroom and so knowing that and that her mother was quite abusive. And so that's right. for anybody just to be aware, like in terms of, of content or trigger warnings for this film, you know, she does touch on having been abused as she was growing up. Mm-hmm. And I think it like I feel like we only just got like the briefest taste right. of what she experienced between her mother mm-hmm. and then she was sent off to... Ireland had like these institutions where you could just send a woman who had too much personality, too many opinions. What teen? I think she was like a teen, right? Yeah. She was yeah. 15 or 16 yes. when she was sent. But like 
she talked about when she was punished, she would be sent up to go with, go on the floor where they had women who had been in the there hospice. for decades. That's just crazy. Decades. Their families would send them. She's too spirited, like as mm-hmm. a, as, as a way of controlling women's behavior, like just mm-hmm. horrific. And so realizing that, sh- that like sh- that moment of tearing the thing from the Pope had so many dimensions to it mm-hmm. because she was abused by her mother, but really her mother was abused by the culture and the right. church and perhaps mm-hmm. even her own family. And the church just allowed the physical and sexual abuse of children to run rampant. Mm-hmm. And like blew my mind. Right. Let's see. I'm like, we, we went I'm off. Sorry. The t- I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I was like, no, we're really going to talk about this. This is really good. The thing I liked is she never wanted to be popular. She said it wasn't mm-hmm. my goal in life was to be popular. Like that was her outlet. Music was her outlet. I love that. I mean, music really is an outlet yes. for everybody. It's universal. It's It can really heal people. And she said, she said, I never wanted to be popular, but she said, Irish artists have a history of creating conversations that need to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, some some of the like the language so she narrates this she is talking like throughout the whole documentary she's actually yeah. doing a lot of the talk it's an interview but you, she's off screen she's, you don't that was so interesting so, yeah. there, so it was her but then also because the the director i guess they i guess she did a two-day interview with mm-hmm. Sinead o'connor for this but then also she talks to peaches who is <laughs> wonderful <laughs> also uh an artist and Kathleen Hanna, who was the front person for Bikini Kill and right. La Tigra and like really from that riot girl kind of movement. And she talked to her first husband and kind of like Chuck D from Public Enemy and like mm-hmm. a bunch of other people. And we never see any of their faces. And I thought that was such an interesting choice. Yeah, like, I was... Blonde. Yeah, I thought it was great. I thought that's what I think that's probably why when I first started, I was like, who's talking? Like who, like what? Because her voice was relatively mm. deep. And I'm like, who's yeah. who's talking? And I missed it because they had a blip of it where it said, you know, voice of Sinead O'Connor. And I'm just like, I had oh, to go back yeah. and find I was like, oh, so it really is her talking. But she is like she was like super smart and super aware. And mm-hmm. you know how I am with words. I always write down like important sentences and you know how she said about you know Irish artists. But she said, and she said this very young. She was on an interview. Mm-hmm. It was in the 90s. She was on a talk show, which, by the way, all the talk show people were dicks back then. Totally. Like they treated women like ass. And I, like I grew up then and I like I didn't even notice it. I wasn't aware of it because it was just that's how it was. And mm-hmm. that's horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but watching it back, I was like, oh, my God, this guy's an asshole. Why didn't she call him out on this? Yeah. But like he was giving her a hard time about so much about being like always in those institutions and having a shaved head. And why didn't she look mm-hmm. like most women? And but she this is really cool because like during these interviews, she's very like she seems very shy and, uh, you know, smiling, kind of like just sweet. Yeah. And she says, we can't talk about racism without being political. You know, because they were getting onto her. Like, why are you being so, why are you using your platform for this? Mm-hmm. And she said that. I was like, that was amazing, you know, because she was like way ahead of like. Well, that, I mean, that song, Black Boys on Mopeds. Mopeds yeah. Is mm. huge. I don't know. I don't know how much airplay it got at the time, but it's like, it seems to me anyways, 
if you're looking at sort of some of the protest music at the time, because that's the thing she says, she never meant to be a pop singer. She wanted to be a protest singer, right. which makes sense because Bob Dylan was one of her favorite all-time inspirations. Mm-hmm. And that's where I thought, again, it was really interesting that, you know, the connection with Public Enemy and having Chuck D there talking about it, because that first time she was on the Grammys, she's performing and she's actually protesting multiple things at the same time. Like this is, again, I told Chris, I did, I went down some rabbit holes as I want to do. And so like, I didn't realize she had attached to the back of her jeans. She had her toddler's onesie attached to it. And she had like a patch with his name sewn on the jeans, which was like a fuck you to the producers who, when they found out she was pregnant and they were making the first right. album. Oh, I know that was horrible. Her, right. Like they yes. tried to pressure her into getting an abortion Ugh. and that was her performing at the Grammys, the biggest stage in the world, basically saying, fuck you, a mother can do this. But then she also Mm. on the side of her head had the logo for public enemy there Mm -hmm. who weren't going because although there were finally awards being given to rap artists, they weren't being televised. And so she's like, all right, I'm going to take this stage, but I want you to know. (laughs) Right. Which like, what? So then when I think about Black boys on mopeds, it's not the same, but I see like a spiritual affinity with songs like Fuck the Police. Right. Right. You're right. Like there's just something like that her convictions are so strong. She's like, how can I not write about this? Right. And meanwhile, the rest of the world is like, who do you think you are? Oh my gosh, the backlash of what of ripping up a picture of the Pope. I mean, ooh, mm-hmm. I was like a lot of people were like, well everybody bring your like cds <laughs> cds mm-hmm. and tapes cassettes and like mm-hmm. they would like steamroll over them and break them and send her back all the pieces because they're like don't send it don't send her the tapes and the cds back because she can turn around and resell them so crunch them yeah. up and then send. i mean it was like a huge push and even like people were uh like uh like oh, frank Sinatra joe pesci and joe oh, yeah. pesci oh yeah fuck they were well, brutal yeah, I mean, Oops, Frank I Sinatra said he wanted to kick her ass, but like the the following week, Joe Pesci on mm-hmm. Saturday Night Live being highly specific with how he wanted to physically assault her right. was actually nauseating to yeah, watch. I was, yeah, I did not know that, and I'm no longer a fan. Not that I, I was know. a fan to begin with, but you know, he didn't. I, he didn't bother me either way. But now, fuck him. I'm out. Mm-hmm. So another one of the uh, the quotes that I wanted to point out is because they ostracized her and she mm-hmm. didn't really care. She said, mm-hmm. um, they tried to bury me, but they didn't know I was a seed. Like that was beautiful. Like mm-hmm. that is beautiful stuff right there. And so the reason why I picked that besides her passing is she at one point identified as a lesbian. She said she was a lesbian back in like 2005 and then she changed it to like, 75% straight, 25% queer. Uh, and she was a big ally. Like she really mm-hmm. helped, especially Ireland. She really helped, you know, women have the ability, have the, the thing I loved about her is like, it wasn't an abortion thing. She's like, it's a choice thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, they, they're not making this about choice. They're making it about, you know, the actual abortion when it's a yeah. choice thing. So, so she really, really helped a lot of uh, women get rights uh in mm-hmm. ireland and all over the world i mean so it was just so incredible to see like the ripples of yeah. just one event like how it turned something so 
uh, what people deemed as negative into such an incredibly positive and uplifting thing. Like, yeah. watch us all rise, watch us, you know, fight the fight and and get out there and and stand for what we believe in. And and it's it's interesting because like my the people in my life at the time they were very like I can't believe she ripped up the picture of the Pope. I'm like, shut up, you're not even religious. Like, why mm-hmm. why do you care? It's like, why do you yeah. care? And and they just they didn't you know I don't know. There's just so much here to talk about, and I I we could be talking for hours. I know. Like, and it turns out she was right. She was right. And like, even when the church eventually apology, when those apologies came out for all the the scandals and the cover-ups and the whatever, she never got, Mm -mm. she never got the apologies that she should have because she Mm -hmm. was fucking right the whole time. Yes. Like maddening. And yeah, we see her in addition to not just being an ally, like we got, there's a scene where we actually see her performing to like a crowd of like there were drag queens there, and it turns out oh it was, she loved yeah. Oh so my I was gosh. reading about it. That scene was filmed in Lee Bowery's club, which is like you know Lee Bowery was a huge influence on drag and the club kids scene and the, all of that, and so she's connected in with there. And her, you know, you see her kind of affinity for the Rastafarian movement. And it was interesting because she said something at one point in one of the archival things about like Rastas and, and Irish people actually get along really well and they're living in this uh, that same part of London. And it reminded me of when Queen Elizabeth died and like the best jokes were coming from the Irish and the <laughs> African kind of parts of Twitter and often together making these jokes. And yeah, she was just, I don't know, the whole thing for me just really helped underscore how powerful she was mm-hmm. how much she suffered for speaking truth to power and i thought the ending was interesting where it basically said like you look at and there are so many especially in music but there are so many artists who do make political statements now mm-hmm. and it's not claiming that she paved the way for literally everyone but there is some kind of oh, again, sure. like a spirit, spiritual affinity connection there between what she did you don't get to what they're doing today without some of what she did and bob mm-hmm. dylan and these other kind of protest artists along the way yeah. yeah it was it's an amazing documentary i mean even if you don't know about her it would be good for just anybody just to to just to see like for for women for queers just mm-hmm. how how far we've come and it's amazing like seriously i wasn't aware of how bad mm-hmm. people were to women and to, to anybody who had an opinion that that wasn't theirs, um, to just like speak their mind. Like, how are you comfortable? Like, like giving her shit on, you know, on national television, like how, like, who were these people? You know, they're all, yeah, but disgusting. I will say, so I went into it and I didn't know anything about it except Mm -hmm. one, it was about her (laughs) and two (laughs) that another friend saw it and really enjoyed it. And mm-hmm. so I thought it was going to have a more fulsome accounting of her life. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't because it's not about that. It right. really is about the lead up to and the aftermath of mm-hmm. the Pope photo being ripped up. Moment. And how it changed her uh, her whole entire professional career. Mm-hmm. I mean, it pretty much kind of tanked after that, but she didn't care. I mean, she was like still fighting the fight and kept making music right kept making her music i i forget how many albums she has nine i something. 10 19 it's something i remember the nine so something uh, like that 
Yeah, it was uh, fascinating and very sad that she's no longer here. Mm-hmm. Like, I wish I would have seen this earlier. You know, I wish I would have seen it when it came out, or I wish I would have paid closer attention yeah. uh, during all of this. You know, I was wrapped up in my own stuff. And I keep forgetting that there are people out there that help us move forward and to give them the attention they deserve. You know, I, I forget that sometimes because I get so involved in, you know, my things like, oh, I got to get this deadline, you know, and I've got to mm-hmm. do this. And so this is, it's just, it's a very good documentary for the whole world to see. Yeah. I so that was my official recommendation. <sighs> What about you, Tara? What is your official recommendation? All right. So I'm recommending a graphic novel. It's actually not coming out until September 26th, but I'm too excited to hold back. And this way, I don't know. I think people should also go out and pre-order and give a little love to the author because pre-orders help so much. And so it's called Blackword by Lawrence Lindell. This one, it's about a group of four friends. They're black, they're queer, and they're just like weirdos who are trying to build community. And so the four people, they're like really, they're quite distinct. So Lika, is, she's sweet. She's anxious. She's kind of like the group's leader if they have one. And Lika uses she, her pronouns. Amor is very smooth, you know, lives up to their name <laughs> as they flirt with strangers. They're pumping up their friends, spreading love everywhere. Amor uses they, them pronouns. Tony is the skateboarder, skateboarding as often as possible. I tried going back. I read it twice, um, Mm. but I still couldn't remember for sure if Tony uses he, him pronouns. I'm almost positive. But when I went back and flipped through, I couldn't find references. And, you know, we've got to sometimes stop looking. So I did. (laughs) (laughs) And then Lala is the smallest but scariest of the group. Uh, She has a reputation in the neighborhood for being for like scaring the kids. (laughs) It's pretty funny. And she's not afraid to call things out or fight in the right moment. So I'm assuming that it takes place now. And if that's true, then they first met at a reading camp eight years ago, which was like, Mm. I just think is the cutest thing ever. It's like, go pick which of the summer camps you're doing in the community center. And they all went to the reading camp table. As would we would. Exactly. That's what we would do. These (laughs) are our people. (laughs) Um, But they're still in touch. They're each other's best friends. And they're trying to build a community for other Black queer people who just feel, you know, when you feel like different or like a weirdo or whatever. Um, And they're calling it the section. And so when it opens, you know, they all wake up and they're like, let's go to the community center. And they get there and they're joined by two people. One of them is this like older Black man in like really traditional African fabrics. And they're all, they're kind of like, oh no. And then there's this like white guy with, you know, like the the man bun and a Black Lives <laughs> Matter shirt. And they're just like, oh, no. And, you know, that older man, he's awful. He's really, really awful to them because Lika's kicking off the meeting with intros and she's um, saying we're going to do pronouns. And he's like, I don't believe in pronouns. And like <laughs> really goes hard and awful with this. Like, I'm a strong black man. How can you do this? I don't believe in this. You're trying to shut me up. And remember how I said that Lala is not afraid to speak up. Mm. Sometimes when she speaks up, it involves hands or fists. And maybe this led to a situation in which, uh, so the, so the section gets banned from the community center because he kind of goes off and tells. And then, so that leads to the whole rest of the story of, okay, how do we find a new space and how can we build this community? How can we actually get more people in the section? And so I was really surprised 
buy this book. I have to say it was one where the publisher reached out to me. It happens every so often we get a reach out from some kind of publisher, filmmaker, whatever, and we'll learn about something and then we'll recommend it. That happened with that web series that I recommended oh, yeah. mm-hmm. at one point. And in this case, I kind of read the blurb and I was like, I'm interested. Okay. And they sent me, they actually sent me a physical book, which for graphic novels is much preferable to me. And I'm so glad that happened because I don't know that I would have found out about it otherwise. Hmm. So there were, there were a lot of things that I really loved about this. One of them actually, in addition to the main characters, there's this one side character in particular that I really, really love. His name is Mr. Marcus. So remember how they met at reading camp? Mr. Marcus was their facilitator at reading camp, which I just think is adorable. And this, so they're still they're still in touch. And he's almost like this. He's definitely an elder for them, but he's mm-hmm. kind of like an uncle. And he owns and operates a local bookstore and he runs regular book fairs. And so they help him out with that. But like the, the whole reason he does this is to make sure that there's like a safe and clean space mm-hmm. for kids to come in and connect with books like he's trying to connect black youth with books which is great and there are a couple times when he says there's like the first time where he just says hey like honestly if you need help just ask me but there's this one day when leek is so disheartened and it's just her and him and he's like i told you you don't have to do this alone like let me know when you need help because his point is that like he gets it you can't organize and you can't build community by yourself You need other people to do this. Don't assume that you have to do everything yourself. And I also love the the way they chose to connect with the community. And it's by the the what ends up happening is they create Blackword. Blackword is a portmanteau of black and awkward. I love it. Isn't it cute? So that's the name of an event that they throw. (laughs) And it's a festival. It's sort of like a festival, but anyway, it's an event that's all about zines. Do you know what zines are? No. I feel, oh, I was going to say, I feel like you probably do, but. No. Um, so zines is, they're like these underground self-published like little magazines. They were often like, oh, okay. you know, like photographs stapled together, whatever. The the first, like what we would call a zine, the first uh, came out in the 1930s because mm. that was when self-published sci-fi fan magazines were created. And that's where the, the name zine comes from, just like fan magazines. But if you think about it, like self-published pamphlets, tracts, these sorts of things, they go back Uh, centuries. Mm -hmm. And there's really like famous ones that we still know about, like Martin Luther's or what Benjamin Franklin did. But they diversified a lot in future decades as a part of like underground movements. They were a way to get out alternative or political messages. And so we saw that with like civil rights activists and the punk music scene and queer people and feminists and intersections of all of these like I mentioned Riot Girl with uh, when Kathleen Hanna came up earlier, like the Riot Girl scene had so many zines. And then if we think about the sapphic fiction community, like the latter is definitely a zine that, you know, some of our elders in the in the sapphic fiction community were publishing. And so I loved seeing that this was what brought this vibrant queer black community together. Speaking of vibrant, so is the art. So the the color use in it is so good. It's so beautiful and it's bold. And something I thought was so interesting with the art was that sometimes the art style itself would shift from panel to panel, depending on the emotion that was happening or like Mm -hmm. what the scene really needed. 
And so it that would include things like the line width being used on the drawings might change, the shading techniques might change, an exaggeration of features, or just like a straight up, it looks like almost, um, I don't know how to put it, other than the style completely changes. Like it gets like almost a little more refined or it gets a lot less mm-hmm. refined on purpose, depending on the emotion. That's cool. Right? And like, yeah, it's not a very cool. dialogue heavy graphic novel. And so the art does a huge amount of the heavy lifting in actually telling the story, bringing that more life to the characters, the feelings that they're having. We're going to talk about the villains, because let's be honest, the villains is really where we have the content warnings for people. (laughs) So I think the thing that I appreciated about them is that they were there. They were present enough for us to understand what they were there about. Mm -hmm. And they were drawn carefully enough so that we can really see and understand, you know, the harms that they represent for these characters that honestly, like, it's a quick read, but I really fell for these characters. I really loved them. And I really fucking hated these villains. (laughs) So I think that also speaks to how effectively they're portrayed. So there's, like I said, there's that older black man at the center. He's extremely homophobic. He Mm -hmm. centers his views and his experience as this, like, straight, strong black man in opposition to these leads you know he bangs on about the gay agenda he it's not just that first scene like he comes up later Mm. on he is known to be a problem in the queer community there and he's proud that he had them banned you know he makes a comment about this is how you shut down the gay agenda um then there's that white guy who's with him who's one of those like he's so proud Mm. to be an ally and like he comes across almost as a caricature but at the same time I've known people like this. Mm -hmm. We probably know. We do. Multiple people like this. Like he's so proud that he's an ally to this older black guy that he's totally ignoring the harms this, this man is doing. He's like, no, I'm a black ally. And then he's like, he's taking this guy's side, but like there's these four younger black adults who are also right there in front of him. And so it's so absurd and performative Mm -hmm. but that's the point like so i think for white readers who are reading this keep that in mind what does your allyship look like it's like it's a thing to consider i don't think this book was written for white people but like i think there are things that we can take away from that when we're able to step back and really be serious with ourselves And then there's a Jesus freak who shows up at one point to one of their meetings and he's literally there just to tell them to repent, (laughs) which again is like, well, it sucks, but like, it's a thing that happens. And so as these friends interact with these people, we get to see that, you know, for black queer people, there are extra layers to the discrimination that they experience because of the intersections of their identity. So, you know, they get, a different experience than like people who are straight and black or people who are queer Mm -hmm. and white. Like Mm -hmm. I only understand a little bit of like, I can't, I, I won't experience all of what they're experiencing. There's a one other note that I want to make for anybody who's listening, that's interested in reading this, but if they are not black, just know that the dialogue is for the most part, it's really written in African-American vernacular. And just like, it's a good idea to know that going in, It is a set of dialects that each have their own regional flavor, but it's been such a stigmatized language. And we hear about it being like broken English or ungrammatical or English, which is not Mm -hmm. true. It is a complex, like 
it ha- it is its own language. And so what I want to do um, is just to make sure that, you know, anybody wants to check it out, but they're not familiar with the mechanics of African-American vernacular. We're going to put a link in the show notes. It's a really short, super digestible resource that I found. I think it was only five or six pages, but it will give you a helpful background on kind of the history and structure of African-American vernacular. Doesn't get into regional specifics, but like I said, it's only six pages and it will still be helpful if you're not familiar with it. So I think this, I mean, I want everybody to read this book, but mm-hmm. I especially think that if anybody wants a story about the importance of community building, not going it alone, being with people who genuinely understand you, it's a great one. And it's not like, I, I don't think this is a kid's book, but also if you do have a precocious kid in your life, they can absolutely read it. My eight-year-old read it last night or the night before. And so I just told her two things. I was like, okay, you need to know two things about this. You're going to read it and you're going to think that some of it isn't written correctly. And that is because it is a different type of English. It is okay. It is not incorrect. It's just different. The other thing you need to know, there are some homophobic people in here. She crushed it in an hour and she loved it. She hated the homophobes. She loved the book. She thought it was great. So I think people of most ages. I'm going to read it. Yeah. I'm going to read it. Yay! And like I said, it's going to be out in late September. So people, please, please pre-order it. That's it. That's what That's I got. <laughs> That's great. No, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm excited about it. I know that, uh, uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm a little brain dead right now. That's okay. Um, that is all for this episode. Thank you so much as always for joining us. If you've enjoyed the show and you haven't subscribed yet, please do so that you'll get notified when we release a podcast episode. If you have a friend that you think would like us like our, well, I don't know if they'd like us, but if they'd like the show, please tell them about it. And if you do want to support us, there's links in our show notes to our coffee where, I mean, that's where the money goes. And then the newsletter sign up where you get an email every other week and it will include queer media updates. They have book lists now. They have all kinds of stuff. Amazing. Or if you want to connect with us on your favorite social media sites, uh, we have links in the show notes for that too. Or you can just search for Queerly Recommended on Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, TikTok, and Twitter, or email us at podcast at queerlyrecommended.com. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. (laughs) Did you hear Debbie laugh? (laughs) 